0: Image. Fresh Image is a non-profit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish and at the kitchen table. Today we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be.
1: My dear friends in Christ, Today we arrive at the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, And today, we encounter the second of the two key exemplary figures mentioned on the first Sunday of Advent. The first of these figures was St. John the Baptist, who we spent the last two Sundays learning from. On the second Sunday of Advent, we learned a twofold lesson from the Baptist. The first thing we learned was that when we hear the message of the Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed to us, our initial reaction must be one of conversion of rejecting sin and thereby turning away from the pursuit of worldly things and toward God, through, with, and in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Second, once we turn back to the truth of the divine word incarnate, we must be prepared, as John the Baptist was, to live the truth courageously and unapologetically. In the Baptist we encountered a strange and shocking figure, If we are to live out the Christian faith in its fullness in today's world, we must be willing to be strange and shocking to those around us as well, for it will mean prioritizing the things of God over all else. During the season of Advent, it has meant placing the things of God before parties and presents, and throughout the whole year, it will mean placing the things of God before sporting events and jobs, etc. Such a life is foreign to a world filled with demigods of all stripes, who place themselves at the center of the universe and determine meaning for themselves and thereby live the ego drama. The human creature cannot but feel lost in such a situation, for it simply was not created for such a life. Instead, every single human creature, without exception, has been created to play a completely unique role in the theodrama, where God animates the life of each creature and makes his loving presence known and felt in the world through each iteration of his divine image. Today in our Gospel reading we encounter a figure who played her role in the theodrama to perfection, Mary of Nazareth, the Mother of God. Our Gospel reading for this Sunday comes from the first chapter of Saint Luke's Gospel, verses twenty six to thirty eight. It is the famous scene of the Annunciation. During cycle year B in the life of the Church, it is possible to hear this Gospel proclaimed no less than three times during the Advent season. We hear it on December 8th for the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception and potentially then again on December 12th for the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, as it is one of the Gospel passages which can be used for that feast, and then again today on the fourth Sunday of Advent. The logical question is, why does the Church keep placing this scene before our eyes during Advent? So rich is the scene of the Annunciation that it opens avenues for speaking about almost any theme within the Christian faith. Thus, today it is important that we read it within the context of the current liturgical season. We recall, as discussed on the first Sunday of Advent, that the word Advent comes from the Latin adventus, meaning a coming or arrival. Unlike any other scene in scripture, the Annunciation reveals God's purpose for the incarnate sons coming among the human family as one of us. In her wisdom as teacher of the people of God, the church helps us to see God's purpose for becoming incarnate through the other readings that pairs with today's gospel passage from Luke, especially our first reading for today. The first reading comes from the 7th chapter of the 2nd book of Samuel where we witness an interesting exchange between God and King David, mediated through the prophet Nathan. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we are told that the king had taken up residence in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies on every side. Importantly, just previous to this episode in chapter 6, David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Zion, the city of Jerusalem, and set it in its place within the tent which David had pitched for it. Throughout these episodes, David proves himself to be a man after God's own heart, as the prophet Samuel had said of him in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, and this in two ways. First, David is clearly blessed with the gift of the fear of the Lord. This is seen in the previous episode, where David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. Then, a man named Uzzah, who was guiding the cart carrying the Ark, reached out and touched the Ark to steady it. With this, we are told that the Lord became angry with Uzzah and struck him dead on the spot. Seeing this, Scripture says that David became frightened of the Lord, and so he decided not to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Whereas Uzzah had evidently become comfortable with being around the ark in God's presence, David shows more trepidation, a sense of awe and reverence, and is unsure that he is worthy of being so close to God's presence and thus he has the ark housed at the house of Obed-Edom for a time. However, when he sees that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom and all his household, David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now, I understand that we might be tempted to be skeptical of David. It may seem like David wants God further away out of fear for his life and wants God close so that he can have the good stuff God's presence brought to the house of Obed-Edom. But I would suggest that the first experience of seeing God strike Uzzah down had made David question whether or not God wanted to be close to the human family, so close you could touch him, or wanted to keep the human family at arm's length, if you will. However, the experience of seeing the house of Obed Edom flourish taught David that God indeed wanted to be close to the human family, for when God comes close, all things flourish, life in abundance, is experienced. David is playing the part of the theologian here. He is studying God attentively, trying to learn who this God is that he serves, and seeing what it is that this mysterious and powerful God wants from him and from the human family, and responding to God accordingly. Seeing that God desires to be close to the human family and desires good things for them, David draws closer to God and brings the ark to Zion. David also shows himself to be a man after God's own heart in this scene through his behavior in God's presence. We are told that on both occasions when King David was present for the transportation of the ark, he and all the house of Israel danced before the Lord with all their might, with singing and with lyres and harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. David danced with such abandon that we are told his wife, Michal, the daughter of the late King Saul, mocked him for his behavior, saying... How well the king of Israel has honored himself today. How well the king has honored himself today. Mikhail was living in the world of the ego drama, a world where the self is all that ultimately matters. But David is unfazed by his wife's mockery. He already knows that his life isn't about him. It's about God. And he responds accordingly, showing himself to be a man of worship someone authentically courageous and unafraid to give God his due no matter who is watching. We thus have in David a man after God's own heart, a man characterized by reverence for God and animated by a desire to worship God with his whole being, joyfully dancing in God's presence. This brings us to the episode we witnessed today. We are told that David decides that it is just not right for him to be living luxuriously while the ark is basically housed outside. King David says to his son, the prophet Nathan, Here I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent, revealing to the prophet his intention to build God a house just as majestic as his. Nathan responds positively, saying, Whatever is in your heart, go and do, for the Lord is with you. However, that night, God speaks to the prophet Nathan, giving him this message for King David. Is it you who would build me a house to dwell in? I have never dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up from Egypt to this day, but I have been going about in a tent or a tabernacle. As long as I have wandered about among the Israelites, did I ever say a word to any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is revealing something of himself to David here. God does not desire, in the first instance, a house made of wood and stone. Though this is not to say that houses of worship are bad, as we will hear God confirm momentarily. Rather, God is revealing to David two things. First, God cannot be contained by human creatures in the sense that we could build him a house and he would stay put. As God says later in salvation history through the prophet Isaiah, the heavens are my throne, the earth my footstool. What house can you build for me? Where is the place of my rest? My hand made all these things when all of them came to be, oracle of the Lord. The second thing God reveals to David here is that God is always the initiator, the first mover, the first actor, which means that even the human creature's response, the creature's worship of God, is graced, given to them by God. God confirms this in a twofold manner. First, he tells David, I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to become ruler over my people Israel. I was with you wherever you went, and I cut down all your enemies before you. God is reminding David, From the nothingness of obscurity, I called you for myself, and it is I who made you king. You did not do this on your own. And second, God says to David that God is going to make a lasting house for him. When your days have been completed and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, sprung from your loins, and I will establish his kingdom. David's house shall constitute a lasting kingdom through David's son, Solomon. And importantly, God adds, It is Solomon who shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom are firm forever before me. Your throne shall be firmly established forever. Though it takes us beyond our reading for today, David's response to God's message is important for our discussion. Having received this promise from God, David says, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you should have brought me so far? And yet even this is too little in your sight, Lord God. For you have made a promise regarding your servant's house, reaching into the future, and giving guidance to the people, Lord God. What more can David say to you? Therefore, great are you, Lord God. There is no one like you, no God but you, as we have always heard. David's response here can be characterized as humble worship. David knows that he is undeserving of God's superabundant goodness to him, and all he can do is bow down in humble gratitude and worship his God. Such would characterize the house of Israel at its best down through the centuries. Thus, we hear the people of God echo David's words of praise in our responsorial psalm for today. Importantly, the entirety of the psalm makes clear that it is a lament, mourning the defeat of the Davidic king. Yet nevertheless, the people continued to sing of the goodness of the Lord, of His mercy and His faithfulness, and pray that God will soon fulfill His promise to David and establish His kingdom through all ages. What we see in the scene from the first reading foreshadows what takes place at the Annunciation. There, the angel Gabriel issues his famous greeting to Mary, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Mary shows herself to be a true daughter of David in her response. For just as we saw David step back and discern what it was God wanted from him, so too does Mary. We are told that Mary was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel encourages Mary, telling her she has found favor with God, that she will conceive and bear a son and name him Jesus and that God intends to fulfill his promise to the house of David through him. For God will give Mary's son, Jesus, the throne of David his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. At this point, Mary no doubt understood what it was that Gabriel was saying to her. As a daughter of Israel, she would have prayed Psalm 89 together with the people, singing of God's promise to the house of David. Yet Mary, as David before her, has questions. How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? As God had once said to David through the prophet Nathan, so now God says to Mary through the angel Gabriel, I have called you from obscurity to this greatest of tasks. Yet, should you accept it, it is not you who will accomplish this in the first place. Rather, I will accomplish this through you. Gabriel explains, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What David carefully discerned is now fully revealed to Mary by the angel Gabriel. God revealed to David that though he wasn't overly concerned about a building, he did indeed want to be close to the human family. Now, through Gabriel, God reveals that he doesn't just want to be close to the human family, He wants to dwell among and within the human family, up to the point of becoming one of them. Picture Mary, thoughtfully listening to God's message to her through the angel Gabriel. The words must have shocked her on some level. Not only has this divine missive come out of the blue, but both its extraordinary nature and the demand it was to place upon her must have been overwhelming. How could anyone be up to the task of being the mother of God's son? How would she respond? The seconds that pass between Gabriel's explanation and Mary's response are the most consequential in human history. Describing the drama of the scene in one of his Advent homilies, St. Bernard of Clairvaux portrays heaven and earth, holding its breath. Will she say yes? The yes comes. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. In his work Jesus of Nazareth, the Infancy Narratives, the great Joseph Ratzinger describes Mary's response this way. It is the moment of free, humble, yet magnanimous obedience in which the loftiest choice of human freedom is made. Mary is humble, yet magnanimous. Humble enough to realize, as David did, that she was not deserving of what was about to happen yet magnanimous enough to desire to play her role in this greatest of divine actions, the incarnation of the Son of God. Mary's yes makes her the mother of God, the living dwelling place of God, created by God. Now notice how the various lines crisscross down salvation history. We are told next that Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And what happens when Mary greets Elizabeth? John, as a true child of Israel, dances before the ark, as it were, leaping in his mother's womb as God's dwelling place, Mary, draws close to him. But Mary is not outdone, for she responds with her own humble act of grace-filled worship, uttering her own thanksgiving through her Magnificat, just as we saw her forefather David do above when God promised great things to him. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on will all ages call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. The Magnificat is the exclamation point on the fiat. Mary's yes was the first note of her worship, and she reaches a crescendo in singing her Magnificat. Taking the two scenes together, Mary becomes the archetype of the human family in its entirety and of each of its members individually. In Mary, we find the aim of the incarnation of the Son of God fully realized. What God once accomplished in Mary, He desires to accomplish in each human creature individually and in the human family collectively. God desires to dwell within us. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is what we have been preparing for this Advent. Just as David's son Solomon was to build God's place of worship, so too Mary's son, Jesus, built God's dwelling place. It consists of those who, like Mary and David before her, are called by God to accomplish great things by allowing God to live in and through them. I speak of the church. In the Greek, ekklesia, ek, meaning out of or from, and kaleo, meaning to call out or invite. The church, the body of Christ, consists of those called out of the world to live in the world as God's dwelling place in it. As St. Paul teaches us in his letter to the Ephesians, You are no longer strangers and sojourners but you are fellow citizens with the Holy Ones and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the capstone. Through Him the whole structure is held together and grows into a temple sacred in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Constructing this dwelling place, This living dwelling place consisting of human creatures who are animated by the life of God within them was God's purpose in creating the human family at the very beginning. And with Mary's yes, it becomes a living reality in history. For by Mary's yes, God is not only near us, but God dwells within us, having become one of us. My friends, this Sunday, God's plan for the human family is fully revealed to us. God intends not only to draw close to us, God intends to dwell within us, making of the human family a living temple, collectively united in the unceasing worship of God through, with, and in the Incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, the Head of the Body, the Church. Thus, this Advent season has been about preparing to live as members of the Church anew, Our penitential acts have been meant to prepare us to live out the great task that God is calling us to as His living dwelling place in the world, the Church. In its dogmatic constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, the Second Vatican Council described the great task which constitutes the Church's identity as being the sacrament of salvation in the world. Thus, in paragraph 9, the Church teaches, God gathered together as one all those who in faith look upon Jesus as the author of salvation and the source of unity and peace, and establish them as the church, that for each and all it may be the visible sacrament of this saving unity. Being a member of God's sacrament of salvation in the world is the great task that each Christian has been called to, a task which is perhaps more daunting today than ever before. For it means saying yes to God, in the face of those who would scoff at us as foolish as Mikhail had done to David. It means saying yes to God when what he calls us to seems impossible as happened in Mary's life. As he reminded David and Mary before us, God himself will build his dwelling place. But he will not do it without our yes. He will not do it without a humble and magnanimous response on our part. God desires to dwell within the human family, and we have been preparing to say yes all of Advent. The moment is at hand. Heaven and earth hold their breath. How you respond has the power to transform history, for it will either allow or prevent God from doing His saving work through you. Will you say yes?
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.